Probably my experience with Teak is what prompted a lifelong passion for facilitating change. I don't think anybody begins life thinking, you know what, I'm going to be involved in change for my professional life. Listening to the Teak Nation podcast with Donnie Aldrich, where we hope to educate, inspire, and entertain you with tips and lessons from members of our fraternity. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us on another episode of our podcast. I am TKE CEO Donnie Aldrich, and I am honored to have as our guest for this podcast the Grand Epi Preetness of Talk Ep Epsilon, Dr. Jim Hickey. Thank you, Dr. Jim, for joining us today. Happy to chat with you today. So we are live here at Leadership Academy 33 in Colorado Springs, and that's really where I wanted to start in our discussion and asking you some questions. You are a, a Leadership Academy graduate. Uh, we our current Grand Preakness is a Leadership Academy graduate. That's the first time in Teak history we've had a Grand Preakness and a Grand Epi who are both Leadership Academy graduates. Can you talk about your Leadership Academy experience and what it's meant to you both during your collegiate years and, and post? Sure. So the first thing I would say, it's probably not a coincidence that the Grand Preakness and the Grand Epi Preakness are Academy grads. When I attended Leadership Academy 4 in 1993, I remember very distinctly sitting down in a circle on the floor with the then CEO, T.J. Schmitz, and he told us all, we're investing in you. And someday, you know, the fraternity will reap the reward of that benefit. And I remember those words, you know, I I took them to heart and they stayed with me for much of my life. And that Leadership Academy experience, I would say, was a defining moment both in my, my personal life, my professional life, certainly my teak life. Because uh, how many years are we now? We're uh, knocking on 26, 27 years later. Um, I'm still involved with Talk Up Epsilon. Part of our role, both you and I, a lot of events that we go to, I think a question that we get asked many times that we aren't able to to speak long enough on because we're, we're running from meeting to meeting or event to event is to talk about our collegiate experience. And I know folks always have that curiosity, especially our collegiate members, what what our collegiate experience was like. Can you highlight and talk a little bit about what was your what was your experience like at Wagner College? Wagner is a small private liberal arts college. Actually, I just before arriving here at uh, in Colorado Springs, I spent uh, Friday and Saturday back at Wagner College for my 25th college reunion, and it was uh, it was a great walk down memory lane. There were so many people there that I haven't seen in 25 years. There have been professors there who taught me, and uh, as I walked around the campus, um, reminiscing. Uh, telling war stories, so to speak. It, it was a really warm feeling. Um, you, you get to, you had the benefit of perspective, um, looking back very fondly of uh, those times at Wagner College. And a significant portion of my years at Wagner were involved with Teak. I joined uh, TKE in the fall of 1990, and I stayed involved throughout my entire collegiate career. During your, your collegiate experience, I know one piece that you you speak on at conferences and events that that we have is culture change. And I know that you played a big role in culture change in your chapter and have been a big champion of culture change in, in different environments you've been in. Can you, whether it's on a grandiose scale or even just during your collegiate years, talk about how you grew some of those skills in changing a culture? Probably my experience with Teak is what prompted a lifelong passion for 
facilitating change. I don't think anybody begins life thinking, you know what, I'm going to be involved in change for right. my professional life. But it really started as I reflect back when I was a freshman and I joined Teak. I mean, it was a, a great experience, but um, very quickly I knew that the chapter needed some help. It wasn't functioning at the highest levels. It wasn't pursuing excellence. So the, the group of men that I joined with, it was uh, very quickly, it became a focus of ours or a passion of ours that we're going to bring this to the next level. And really, that was probably the seminal moment in my life where I started facilitating change. And then along the way, you you learn by doing. It wasn't until later in life when I got a graduate degree in educational leadership that I was actually studying the research around change, how it works, the challenges, how you overcome it, how you manage it, et cetera. So after you, you graduate from Wagner, uh, many, if not a majority uh, of our of our members they don't stay involved with the fraternity. They don't stay engaged with the fraternity, but you did. You you continue to be involved as a volunteer. Can you talk about what you did as a volunteer and also why did you decide to continue to be involved with the fraternity post your collegiate experience? Teak is one of those organizations or types of organizations where um, – you make of it what you want. So because I had such a positive experience as an undergraduate, I knew that I wanted to remain involved. And as an undergraduate, you encountered professional staff and volunteers and board of advisors and alumni and so forth. And I knew there was an opportunity to stay involved. So after graduating, you know, as life is beginning, it was it was an anchor for me. I got to interact with um people that, you know, that I respected. I got to interact with people that I, you know, aspired to work with. And it really was a a great experience for me in my 20s. I volunteered for my local chapter, but shortly after I had an opportunity, I was a rush coach in the Northeast. The fraternity had uh, this program where I don't even remember how the people got selected, but uh, I became a rush coach and I was given, I guess, the symbol of the office, you know, Teak is big with swag and memorabilia and, and bling and all of that. We got a whistle, and I got a whistle from uh, the then venerable Grand Preetness Thomas Kastner, and I took that with me on the road. I didn't really use it, but it was kind of a reminder that there was an opportunity to, you know, work, make a contribution, help build Teak, make the fraternity better than we inherited it. So you, you spent some time working with, with local chapters, and eventually, uh, in 2009, uh, you ran to be a member of the Grand Council. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and how, how you came to that experience? I think that whether you're a collegiate member or a volunteer, or even just an alumnus listening to this, it's, it's, I think there's a lot of mystique or intrigue about how one even gets tapped on the shoulder to possibly consider being a member of the Grand Council. Can you talk about your journey and your story? I think that's the operative phrase, tapped on the shoulder. So I was involved with TKE for much of my life. I did reach a point where, you know, life happens, you start a family, you're getting graduate degrees, you're you're pursuing your career, and then 
one day I was driving home from work uh, and the phone rings in the car and the caller ID pops up and I think it was Kansas and I ignored the call because I don't think I know anybody in Kansas. <laughs> and so I just keep going. And then a few minutes later, my wife calls and says, some guy just left a message on the home voicemail. Some guy, he's from Kansas or something. And he, you know, he wants you to run for the grand council. And the person who left the message was the then grand epipretness, Herb Songer, who went on to be elected the venerable Grand Preetness at the conclave of 2009. And then subsequent to that, Herb had uh, asked a few people to reach out to me to consider doing it. And I guess my teak pedigree was what, you know, caught their, caught their interest. There was a, candidly, there was a measure of distance. You know, all organizations have politics. Um, I think everyone realizes that. But at the time I ran for council, there were several degrees of separation from whatever politics was going on at the time, which I think, I'd like to think, made me, a, you know, a stronger candidate. Absolutely. And can you, can you put into words that feeling from someone who changed the culture at Wagner, was involved with the local chapter, that feeling at the grand inaugural in New Orleans in 2009 when you were officially voted on the grand council? What, what sort of feelings were you going through at that time? The way I looked at it was it, it was an opportunity to help on a larger scale that change management. Um, and at the time I got elected to council, I had already been involved in several other professional initiatives where I had a significant role in leading or facilitating change. So the opportunity to volunteer on the grand council provided an opportunity for me to share my perspective and my insights and you know experience related to change management. It's a lot more complicated than than people think it is. There are so many things I picked up along the way that when I started doing it, I was just really ignorant. You just, you don't know. There are some things you just, you learn by doing. You don't have an appreciation for it. You don't really understand it until it happens to you. Then you have an opportunity to reflect on it. And then when you face the same issue again, you don't react the same way. You adapt, you grow. Take us inside a Grand Council meeting. I think that just as we talked about the process of getting onto the Grand Council, Grand Council meetings are, are another piece that obviously it's a very privileged few who are in, in those meetings and the discussions. And I think there's always, especially if a, a decision comes about, folks are always curious, what are, what goes on in that room? Can you can you bring that to life? What, what happens in a Grand Council meeting? One of the things that I'm most passionate about in my professional life and my teak life is good government. Because when you have large organizations, boards are involved. And if the board runs well, there's a tendency, a strong correlation that the rest of the organization is going to run well also. And I have been involved with organizations where the board has not worked very well. And I can see manifesting the, you know, the trouble that comes with that. So my 10 years on the Grand Council, there has been a very deliberate, concerted, purposeful focus on making sure that we continue to grow in our governance. Good governance leads to good organizations, and I think that has reflected in the outcomes that Teak has experienced over the last 10 years. You know, our growth as an organization, our our, our pursuit of excellence, our management of you know, risk mitigation, um, our hitting benchmarks related to raising money for St. Jude. Uh, there's just so many things along the way that I don't think would have happened without 
governance being in the right place. Now, of course, it takes staff. You need the right staff, but that's part of governance. There's checks and balances in there to make sure that, you know, we have the we have the right CEO. Well, I'd like to say, uh, since we're on the air, I'd like to say <laughs> that, you know, you were one of the greatest decisions. Hiring you as uh, CEO of TalkCap Epsilon was one of the greatest decisions that the Grand Council made in my time there, Thank my you. 10 years on the board. It's very kind. So in the Grand Council meeting, I, I agree, governance has been a, an enormous part of the shift, and it's something that is a big part of the discussions that you're having uh, from meeting to meeting. Take us a little bit into the discussions in the meeting. We're having committee reports. We're having staff reports. Some of the, the areas and the things that we try to get accomplished in, in, in any council meeting. The challenge in any council meeting is to keep the conversations at a strategic or generative level. Because the people that serve on the council are successful men in whatever profession they, they choose to follow, um, they're leaders and there's a part of leadership that is related to management. And there's just always a tendency in every board that I have ever served on where the board wants to fix the problem down at the micro level. And that is, it, it, it has to be a, a deliberate, purposeful, ongoing effort to not go there. Because the minute you go there, you start to waste time. You start to lose focus. So every every moment we spend trying to, you know, count the jelly beans or split the hairs, we lose precious time together as a board to really think big picture, to talk about vision, to talk about where the organization should be going, where we want the organization to move over the next 5, 10, 25 years, what we envision for Talk Hepa Epsilon. And it's hard. I've I'll dare say that every council meeting I have ever attended in the last 10 years, there was probably a moment where we started to shift into the weeds. Um, I think I was one of those people that often said, uh, guys, we need to redirect. We need to focus. That's a, a staffing issue. They need to solve that. It's not our job to solve that. Our job is to you know, think strategically. Uh, you've heard me say before, one of the one of the examples, example questions I like to uh, use to point out the importance uh, importance of governance is, um, you know, the trains run on time. That's great, but do we need an airplane? It's how do we think differently? How do we change the, you know, the delivery of service? How do we expand the experience? Is there a different way to go about it? When you look back, uh, almost serving a decade now on the Grand Council, what's what's the largest challenge that you've overcome while serving on the council? What's something that was thrown on your plate possibly or something that as a group you had to come together in the last decade that really stands out that you're proud of? I think for me, if I had to single out one important act or focus of attention that the council worked on was really getting risk under control. And while that remains an ongoing effort, when I joined the council, that was an area that was reversed. Risk is something that the council should be talking about. There should be a plan. There should be a vision. But at the time I joined the council, that was really delegated to the staff. And as a result of that focus or priority being flip-flopped, there were a lot of difficulties that, that were associated with that. So I think it was my third or fourth year on the council, the, the then venerable Grand Preetness, Ed Moy, asked me to chair uh, the council's risk management committee, which was a brand new committee. And through you know, work over two years, we really had an opportunity to restructure. And one of the important decisions we needed to make was um, 
transitioning to a different um, insurance carrier. Um, the insurance carrier we had wasn't really meeting our needs. Upon reflection, I don't think that the professional staff realized that. But once we had investigated other options and we ultimately ended up with James R. Favor, um, that is an organization that is serving our needs in a, a much better way. And then along along the way, we end up becoming a part owner in James R. Favor. So um, not only are we mitigating risk by, you know, having, you know, a good experience for young men, but we've also invested in an organization that's helping us to be better along the way. I'm glad you brought up James R. Favor. You and I have been lucky enough. Uh, they have a trip an annual trip. And every three to four years, Teak gets invited to actually go over to London and visit the Lloyds of London and learn about the operation uh, with underwriters and brokers over in London. Uh, And you and I were were lucky enough to be a part of one of those trips. Can you talk about that experience of going to London and learning? When our collegiate members think about paying the $200 or $210 for risk every single year, I I think that there are challenges in understanding how large of an operation this is. And the, the, the depth of the impact and the seriousness with which we take that risk program and working with James R. Favor. So one of the things that I think is very often overlooked or minimized is the liability that comes with any organization. Human beings, I think, don't, unless you're in a very specific role, don't tend to think about what the fallout could be over a policy or an act or a tradition or or something that you know that happens with regularity but being uh, this is a second time I've been a, a head of school I'm responsible for a lot of people health welfare and safety and one of the things I do in my management role is it's my job to think at a high level to make sure that well if we do this is everyone going to be safe is the risk reasonable uh, if not what do we need to do to change it because if there's something that we're doing that is foreseeable, is reasonably foreseeable, and somebody gets injured, uh, we live in a very litigious society, and people start filing lawsuits, and then uh, a lot of money needlessly starts, you know, flowing out of the flowing out of the accounts to attorneys and insurance companies, and uh, sometimes payouts happen. So, to answer your question related to James R. Favor, it was really eye-opening for me in the sense that I never realized how specialized the insurance industry. Is. So when we had the opportunity to go to Lloyd's of London and you know go up to the floor where all of the brokers were were sitting um, with the underwriters, I mean there were ho- probably hundreds of people sitting on the floor. And I remember our tour guide, you know, pointing out, you know, look at this one, and you know he he insures weddings if there's a if there's a thunderstorm. Right. And I remember him pointing across the room. He says, "You see that guy over there? He was really small because he was way across the room. I think he insures Tom Brady's arm." <laughs> And that's all, you know, that's the type of specificity that exists. So with Teek's uh, insurance policies, we have uh, have a niche in the market, too. There are underwriters who specialize in the Greek world, and their their focus is helping us mitigate risk. For me, that was really eye-opening because it enabled me to see a little bit more clearly as I make decisions about risk in my professional life and certainly on the Grand Council, there's just a greater lens that I think others may not see if they haven't had that experience. So over the the last decade being on the council, 
trips like this Lloyd's of, of London trip, um, there are a lot of great places that we get to go, a lot of fo- great folks that we get to interact with, as well as the, the Grand Council has really become a, a family and, and working with the professional staff. It, it really is a traveling family, and we get together quarterly for meetings. And obviously, we go to RLCs and leadership academies and conclaves uh, and alumni volunteer academies. The great thing for those who are who are tuning in and listening to us is that a lot of those stories and things that stick with you in our collegiate years, we're still having those experiences as alumni. And, and that's if you're someone who has not been engaged with a fraternity, we encourage you to come and learn about area alumni associations or chapter alumni associations or getting possibly involved as a volunteer at a local level because these types of experiences still continue to happen no matter what level you serve at. Well, we all have... Talk Kappa Epsilon is the thing that connects us all. It's a common experience. So I think, you know, any teak, any any time you show up somewhere where there's other teaks, there's something immediately to talk about. There's a shared heritage, a shared purpose. I mean, so minimally, if you're, you know, from different parts of the country or different generations, um, th- there's certainly stories that can be shared. So I've been lucky enough to get to know you very well over my 11 years now on the professional staff. Uh, and part of that relationship, I've gotten to know your beautiful wife, Cindy, and your, your four kids. Can you talk about the role that your family has played in your in your life and your success to this point? A little bit of everything. So you mentioned that Teak is a family. So I would say that, you know, were it not for the um, the agreement on the part of my wife that uh, that I volunteer for Talk Cap Epsilon, I probably would not be sitting here. Um, but she recognizes that Teak is important to me, and uh, it's something that you know she has supported, which has enabled me to you know do what I do to be a just be a volunteer for Talk Cap Epsilon. On the professional side, it's the same thing. Um, there's every line of work has its occupational hazards and one of the occupational hazards in what I do is just the the sheer amount of hours and the number of events that I have to attend and it's very often that you know I have to attend a a, a meeting or a ball game and you know uh, I don't I'm not there for dinner I have to catch up a, a little bit later but what I've tried to do in both my professional life and my teak life is involve my family from the time when my kids were small so my oldest my daughter is 15 I have a 14 year old son a 13 year old son a, a 10 year old son they have been coming with me to conclaves for the last eight years so they participate in the friends and family but I do the same thing on my in my professional life uh, my kids come with me to athletic events and trips with the school and it's how you stay connected and then that organization of which you view as a family they also see that you are committed to family and somehow those things are interrelated or they support each other it's uh, it's symbiotic somehow well it's a great it's a great segue you discussed a lot so far your your professional life and uh, you run a school in the Boston area can you discuss your role and, and what you do professionally I've been an educator for my whole life I began my career as a history teacher and then um, shortly into my time teaching maybe three or four years in uh, the head of school asked me if I would pick up the responsibility of uh, fixing the the college office I didn't really have a background in it, but I guess the head of school saw that maybe I had some energy or I had a knack to, you know, help things transform. And that really, my career took off. And then I just, every time I was asked to do something, it was usually, let's improve this, let's bring it to the next level. And then you move on to 
to different places. I was principal of a, a large public high school, and uh, I did my part there helping grow that organization. Um, it was a public school, and it was the era under No Child Left Behind when there were all those federal requirements about how schools are measured and what the benchmarks are for success. And I'm you know, proud to say that you know when I left that school, we had met 40 out of 40 indicators, which is substantial, um, that you know all the benchmarks that the federal government had laid out, the school was meeting. I mean, that was a, a source of pride, but there was a lot of hard work in doing that. You're also awarded New Jersey Principal of the Year, correct? Part of my work, or maybe all of my work in helping that school transform, I was recognized by the New Jersey Commissioner of Education for um, you know, the good work that, that was done there. So I was named the, the New Jersey Principal of the Year. And in the role where I am now, I am headmaster of Austin Preparatory School. Uh, it's an independent day school, about 60 years old, just about 15 or 20 minutes north of Boston. Uh, 750 students, grades 6 through 12. What's really unique in, in the discussions that you and I have, you know, part of my role is you obviously work with the entire Grand Council, but you have individual discussions with Grand Council members. And I think you and I are able to speak the same language many times because you work in head of school, which obviously has students, and you serve a board of directors, just like I work with a board of directors. And can you talk about how, in your professional role, how that has helped you as a board member in serving on the Grand Council? Well, boards, good governance doesn't happen by accident. And it takes the work of the chief executive officer and the board members to put good governance together. If it's only the board doing good governance, there's going to be a problem. If it's only the CEO or the head of school doing doing good governance, there's going to be a problem. It has to be a collaborative effort. There has to be a shared vision. There has to be a a commonality in terms of the direction that that you want to go. It's a common phenomenon than when you are head of a nonprofit, you are working with your board to build a board. And obviously the people that you are trying to put on your board are successful people who are excited about the organization, who have shared vision similar to yours. I mean, if you think about it, it doesn't really make sense to start asking people to join a board who are not aligned with your your philosophy. It's right. only gonna create friction. Can you talk about how do you balance? We've we've talked a little bit about family. We've talked a little bit about your professional life now and about the fraternity. How do you balance those three things? You said you, you tote the family along. Uh, the, the Hickey clan has really become part of our family and folks that we see at every Teak event. How do you how do you make that balance work with all of those commitments? I'm not really sure. That old, that old expression, if you want something done, ask a busy person. Sometimes I feel that's, that's my life. People say, how do you do that? And I often say, I don't know. I just, you get it done. Where there's a will, there's a way. I'm fortunate that uh, I have a, I think I have a, a personality where I'm lucky where I don't need a lot of recharge. Um, I get up every day excited about what I do, and I find that gives me energy. Just looking forward to the day that you know, okay, these are the, these are the professional obstacles or challenges that we're going to confront today. You know, I find that energizing. So, uh, in an ironic sort of way, I get a little energy from the challenge. Uh, some people need energy by you know. They need to pull back and recharge. That happens to me too, where, you know, I need to unplug for a little bit, but, you know, the time I need to unplug is relatively short. That's great. Let's talk a little bit about mentors. I I know that um, the fraternity as a whole, we've had a lot of discussions about mentoring and, and our students especially are craving 
craving those mentors, craving those folks who can help them with both the personal skills, the professional skills, help them possibly get a job down the road. Uh, you've played a, a phenomenal role in my life in being a mentor. Can you talk about what role mentors have played in your life and if you want to share any stories about any of the mentors that you've had? Mentoring is certainly important because the, the insights and the valuable lessons that I received along the way I learned by doing. I mean, you go to school, you, you study, you, you read theory, you read philosophy, but you know, much of what you read, maybe almost all of what you read, it, it, it's not practical. It gives you a framework, it gives you context, you, you understand why things may have happened or you can predict better why a certain dynamic will unfold. But in terms of the mechanics of everyday life, I mean, that comes from taking somebody under your wing and you know, sharing a perspective. So for mentorship to work, there's got to be a, you got to click because I've had experiences where, you know, uh, mentorship works well when you can interact with the person regularly and when you genuinely have a, a friendship, you, you, you get along, you like one another. Because I've had experiences where I was asked to mentor people and as a result of the personalities not really clicking or one party or the other not really making the effort. So for example, one of, one of my alma maters, um, I was asked to serve as a mentor in, uh, in the teaching profession, and they would assign you someone who's kind of going through the process. And much of it involved phone calls. I mean, it's not unlike, you know, because you live in Indi uh, Indianapolis, I live in Boston, we spend a lot of time on the phone, but I, I think even over the, you know, the telecommunications line, there's still that, that clicking, that, uh, Absolutely. that synergy. But when you don't have that, that strong rapport it makes it it makes it very difficult and superficial, um, and then one party or the other starts to pull away a little bit, and then you just start going through the motions. There has to be a you know a measure of um, genuine interest to either help the mentor or the mentor to genuinely want to learn. So I've been fortunate that. Um, Several of the mentors I had in my life, I genuinely respected. Uh, we got along well. You know, early parts of my career, you know, along the way, you pick up different mentors at, uh, you know, at different times, and they, you know, they school you, they teach you about life. And uh, I've had, uh, I've had several of those. That's great. You know, I don't think I would be where I am without, without the help of mentors. You've presented at leadership events all across the country, uh, both for the fraternity, you, you've presented to other principals, other heads of school, uh, obviously being a history teacher presented in front of students. What are any leadership lessons you have for folks who are tuning in to our podcast today? Any any little snippets or tips or tricks that you, you would love to share with the folks out there listening? I would say with leadership, you have to, you have to love the game. Leadership is an art. You have to really be a student of it all the time. And in that role as student, you have to have an acceptance that you will continually learn. I think one of the mistakes that leaders make is that they get into a leadership role, whether it's volunteer or professional, they get appointed. And then at some point they say, you know what, been there, done that. And that's okay because those things happen where you pull something out of the treasure box and say, okay, this happened 10 years ago and this is very similar and this is how I'm going to fix it. However, on the other side, I think it's important to continue to study. 
to read, to interact with new people, because there is always a perspective out there that you are not aware of. So one of the reasons that I go to conferences, um, probably more than the workshops that I sit in, it's just the networking piece. It's just seeing other people who have similar challenges. And when there's a break in between session one and session two, and you go over to Starbucks to get a cup of coffee, there's everybody online. Oh, you just came out of that session. And then you just start talking. I I think that's where the greatest lessons come from. Um, I think the workshops give everyone something to talk about offline. That's something that I think a lot of leaders overlook after a while, because when you're in a position of leadership, there's there's a portion of management uh, that's a, you know part of what you do in your professional life. Um, you encounter a lot of the same things. And then I think there's a tendency to say, well, as I mentioned before, been there, done that. And I think that's a very dangerous place to go. Can you talk about the difference between, you brought up a, a key word, which was management, and the difference between management and leadership? Because I think there are many folks out there that that confuse the two words, and they call everything leadership because it's a, a it's a buzzword. Can you talk about the differences between those two? Well, for me, the the best definition of leadership is the process of promoting change. Period. If you are not promoting change, whatever else you're doing, it's not leadership. Management is more about efficiency and making things work well or or run on time. And when you are promoting change, that's it's a very simple phrase, but it's really complex in terms of what's expected or or, or what you need to do. Um, Leaders need to inspire. They need to have aspirational goals. Their, the way they conduct their life, their vision, their rhetoric, that really needs to lift people. And in doing that, without probably realizing it, at least uh, I don't think it's conscious for most people, that is the process of promoting change. If you're talking about this is where we can be, this is where we can go, this is the next level, and people start to connect with that and it starts to resonate, you have begun the process of promoting change. If you're standing in front of a group of people and you're saying, it's good, I got this, we don't need to change a thing, I'm not even sure that's good management. So let's talk a little bit about let's talk about a little bit of change that could be happening for you. Uh, we're we're a couple of months away from from Conclave, and how excited are you about about the possibility of a change in title, a change being the Grand Epi Preetness, and possibly evolving or ascending into being the Venerable Grand Preetness? That's a that's a tough question because uh, as I think back to the when I joined the council, uh, I joined just to you know, provide service to an organization that I love dearly. But I remember even back then, 10 years ago, people would say, do you want to be the Grand Preetness? And, you know, looking back 10 years, I didn't feel that way back then. I I don't feel that way now. I look at it more as an opportunity to serve the fraternity at a higher level. So obviously, you know, Teak is a unique organization. The power, the authority of uh, of Teak's structure comes from the undergraduates. So in Conclave in August, I plan to appear in front of the nominations committee based on my Teak journey, the 10 years that, you know, that I've, that I've been on the council. I feel that I am in a, a, a position where the nominations committee seriously consider whether or not I am the right person to lead Talk Epa Epsilon over the next 
biennium. It, it's a very humbling experience because when you're an undergraduate, you know, the, the Grand Council, there are these group of people, somehow they're, they're up on a pedestal, they are, they are highly regarded. And now 2019, I find myself being on that board in one of those positions. And I, I don't look at myself that way. I don't look at the other council members that way. We're just, we're ordinary teaks, right. you know, on, on our journey. If someone walked up to you and said, what's your state of the fraternity currently? What, what are your thoughts about where the fraternity currently is? We're a healthy organization, and probably what makes us most healthy is that there is a, a group of men who currently serve on the council and a group of men who serve the professional staff who are confident in the future of the fraternity, in the direction that that we are going. Every organization has challenges and opportunities. We are not exempt from that. And we have to take a hard look at who we are as an organization. We need to continue to have tough conversations, make tough decisions, so that Talk Hepa Epsilon is, continues to be a relevant organization in the life of young men who who are inspired by our values of love, charity, and esteem. You know, the, the mission of Teak, which in my view is not said enough, you know, to aid men in their mental, moral, and, and social development. That phrase there says it all. Everything else, when you talk about love, charity, and esteem, and not for wealth, rank, or honor, that really can very easily be tucked into the mission of Teak. How do you see the future of the fraternity? I'm excited about the, the future of, of Teak. Um, it's really comforting. It's really uplifting to serve with men on the council and to serve with men on the professional staff who are really committed to doing the right thing, who are really committed to leading an organization, inspiring an organization to live its values. I know that sounds very lofty, but when when you talk about mission, this is just my experience in life, when you put every decision through the lens of mission, we're going to change if it's a staff level decision and we're going to change the color of the paint on the wall. That decision somehow on some level, even you know, very small, needs to be connected to the mission of Teak. And if all of our decisions are mission-centered, we'll be just fine. I believe that with all my heart. My, my life's experience has shown me that working in education. And I think as an organization, we need to have a more robust mission conversation to make sure that what we do is aligned with aiding men in their mental, moral, and, and social development. And if we come across something and there's a question as to whether or not it's going to advance that effort, that's when you say, hit the pause button or... That, that's probably not a decision we should or need to undertake at this time. You know, if at Conclave and I'm in front of the nominations committee, my, um, my thoughts that I would like to share with them is that as an organization, we need to be committed more than ever to the mission of TKE. Well, I've been grateful for um, how mission-focused you have been, how you've helped me to be a, le- a better leader, how you've helped the, the members of our professional staff to be better, uh, and very grateful for, for the time and commitment you've made to our organization and for being with us here today. So thank you, Jim, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on our podcast today, and we hope you join us on a future episode.